Thank you for checking out this talk from the Fierce Families Conference that took place back in October of 2023. Our mission for this conference was to put God's design for marriage and family on full display, and then to equip marriages and families to live out God's beautiful design in the context in which he's placed them. So if you'd like to learn more about the Fierce Families Conference, perhaps to attend a conference in the future, or to bring the Fierce Families Conference to your own area, just go to fiercefamilies.com. Well, uh, I think it's a, quite the understatement to say that uh, it is truly an honor and a privilege to be here uh, with you all. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to just uh, give a, a special thanks to Pastor Rich for hosting this conference. Thank you, Pastor Rich and Ryan and Selena for putting it on. I think it's wonderful, important things that we're talking about in this conference and our time together. Uh, as you've just heard, Ryan kind of gave us a a uh, 30,000 foot view, if you will, about the significance of the institution of family for the Christian and for the world. And my talk is going to kind of drill down in a more snapshot vision on the practicals of what that looks like. What does it look like in the home? What, what does that look like? And what is actually happening? Right? What is actually happening at a cosmic level? And so, uh, if you would join me uh, as we uh, begin our time in just a brief word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time we have before us. We ask that you would uh, use it to honor Christ and that you would use it for our good and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the talk as I've titled it is Family Worship as Warfare. Now, perhaps as you were anticipating uh, this talk, uh, to some, this may seem like a very peculiar title, and, and it is. It is a peculiar title, uh, especially given that, uh, as I assume, many of you know what family worship is, and if you don't, it's simply the, the practical participation of father, mother, and child in private household worship, dis discipline, and activities. So think Bible reading, catechisms, prayer, song. Right? That's what I'm talking about. But it's important for, for me to say that what I don't mean by the title family worship being as warfare is the effort that it takes to get your children to sit still during all of those practices. Right? And to many of us who've tried, if you have ears to hear, let them hear, uh, you know how challenging that may be, right? Especially with little ones. But that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about warfare. I also don't mean that this statement should be taken literally and physically, in the physical sense. I don't mean to tell your kids, you know, go get your war face paint and don't forget your personal custom AR build and Johnny, don't forget the grenades on your way back to the couch for catechisms, right? I'm not talking about, as awesome as that would be, that's not what I'm referring to. So, this talk, uh, in a nutshell, my, my, my goal and purpose is to really get at what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say family worship is warfare? And really, when you think about it, I think the challenge for believers when they engage in mundane, everyday faithfulness in their life, particularly in the home, is we undervalue 
and underappreciate the magnitude of what is actually transpiring in the mundane. That is a challenge for believers. When we engage in everyday faithfulness, when we're doing mundane tasks that are obedient to the Word of God, we fail to underscore and appreciate the cosmic magnitude of the glory of God in what is actually being accomplished. And you could say, well, you know, it sure doesn't feel like much, right? I read a Bible story, nobody listened, right? I asked catechism questions and no one knew the answers. I gave them the answer. Like, it's like, we did this 20 million times and, and you know, you, you, they're still forgetting, right? Everybody sings the song out of key, right? And you're like, what's the point? What, what are we doing here? How is this seemingly futile, mundane work equivalent to the weighty and serious business of warfare? How is that the case? And the way that I want to build up to this point is I'm going to work through a number of points to consider that at first may seem a bit disjointed or unrelated to one another, but, but I assure you that they are, and they will function like building blocks, if you will, to build a cumulative case that will drive this conclusion home, that family worship, that mundane thing that you do with your kids and your wife, gentlemen, that's gloriously worthwhile warfare. Okay, that's, that's my goal. So let's look at building block number one. Spiritual warfare is a war for the mind. That's building block number one. One of the challenges of being a pacifist is actually trying to read the Bible. It's very challenging because when you do, you notice how often scripture uses the language of war and warfare. In fact, it's so prevalent in the content of the scriptures that throughout the history of the people of God, you see it on every page. I could almost say that it's hard to understand the Bible if you don't understand war and warfare. Think about even how the scriptures begin and how they end. The scriptures begin with a war. The serpent deceives God's image bearers and initiates the human rebellion. And the way that the pages of scripture culminate is in the destruction of this same serpent, now dragon, where God himself destroys this foe. Now, you see it from cover to cover, but warfare in the language of war isn't just the bookends of the Bible, it's all throughout. From the battles of the patriarch Abraham to the Canaanite conquests of Joshua, throughout the time of the prophets like Elijah who slaughtered the false prophets of Baal after Mount Carmel. Throughout the monarchy of David's illustrious victories in battle, throughout the exile and post-exilic efforts in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem under the direction of Nehemiah, who, by the way, tells the people to build with one hand and go to war with the other. The Bible regularly uses language of warfare, even in the Psalms, the hymn book of God's people. One of the tragic things about modern-day Christian music is how little of the Psalms are actually sung. Maybe perhaps that's not the case in this congregation to the glory of God. But why is that the case? Because if you read the Psalms, they're uncomfortable. They're violent. Right? David is calling for the destruction of the, the enemy. 
Why is this the case? Why is warfare so prevalent in the Bible? Well, because in the Old Testament, particularly, God's people are regularly harassed and involved in warfare against their pagan counterparts. This physical reality of war and warfare across the pages of the Old Testament is an expression of a greater spiritual reality of a spiritual war and spiritual warfare. In the New Testament, we once again right, find the language of warfare. Do you think the Old Testament God was bad with respect to violence and warfare? The language continues on under the New Covenant. But to a greater extent, to the ultimate extent, the spiritual extent. And I want you to look at a couple of texts with me briefly that carry this language of spiritual warfare in the New Testament. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 10. If you have a copy of God's Word. Verses 3 through 5, Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And I want you to note carefully how he describes that in verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Right? It's interesting that a common characteristic across New Testament spiritual warfare text is that this commonality of them is rooted in the life of the mind. Spiritual warfare is a war for the mind. We see this again in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, describe warfare in this way. Peter says, be sober-minded. We've heard that term brought up in our time together. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. This requires intention. This requires uh, attention. It requires to be aware. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And the resisting him comes after the sober-mindedness. In order to resist him and to be firm in the faith, you have to be sober-minded. And last but not least, the classic text in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, the Apostle Paul goes through these glorious truths of the Christian faith. He talks about truth and righteousness and peace and Faith and salvation and the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And he ties it all in a bow by landing the plane with spiritual warfare. And I want you to notice something in that text. In Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20, we read these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because that's true, because we're warring against these things, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then here's how he describes the armor. He begins with what? Truth. And then he ends with what? Truth. So spiritual warfare is a war for the mind. 
It's a war for the mind. Every single human being that has ever lived since the fall has been a participant in this war. Every single person in this room, man, woman, and child, is a participant in this war. And it's a war without any point of neutrality. What you think about God, what you think about worship, what you think about humanity, what you think about intrinsic human value, what you think about identity, what you think about family, what you think about children, what you think about marriage, what you think about sexuality, what you think about education, what you think about government, what you think about politics, what you think about other religions, what you think about work, what you think about food and art and music and beauty and goodness, what you think about the church and on and on and on and on, what you think about anything. will be informed by God in his divine word or the deception and lies of the enemy. It's a zero-sum game. And you can't just choose not to think. You can't choose that. You cannot adopt a position of neutrality. If you do... You're by default already predisposing yourself to the enemy's influence. David Saxton, in his small but concise and punchy volume titled God's Battle Plan for the Mind, the Puritan Practice of Biblical Meditation, says this very succinctly. He says, Satan goes after idle minds. Satan goes after idle minds. In other words, Satan has a particular vested interest in using the myth of neutrality when it comes to the training of the mind in order to take others captive. Friends, the world is not neutral towards the life of the mind. Think about how many godless ideologies are out there that have risen out of the culture we live in to woo us and to deceive the minds of men. You have the chaos of critical race theory. You have the confusion of queer theory. You have the deceptive context of cultural Marxism and intersectionality. You have transgender ideology, feminism, androgyny, a push to erase biological gender distinctions altogether. And by the way, that's done by expanding the genders from what God said was true, that is there's two, to an unlimited number so that the two would become less important and gender would become wholesomely irrelevant. Which, by the way, is classically demonic. <laughs> because demons don't have bodies. They're sexless. There is a mountain of godless ideologies that are presented to us in the world each and every day. Simply put, Christian, we are in a war. We are in a war. If the Christian life is akin to anything, it's a life of war. A war for the mind. And in this war, as unfortunate as it may sound to some, there are no spiritual pacifists. You, don't have, you, you may choose not to use an AR, right? Some of y'all are like, over my dead body. You ain't taking my guns. But you do not have an option of not taking up the sword of the Spirit. 
you do not. You will either be a casualty in this war, a rebel captured by the enemy to do his bidding, or a soldier in the army of God. That's who you will be. J.C. Ryle, in his sermon titled The Fight, says this, Warfare with the powers of hell is the experience of every individual member of the true church. Each has to fight. What are the lives of all the saints but records of battles? The Christian is an active participant in warfare. He's not passive. C.S. Lewis writes in his work, The Screwtape Letters, which is a very intriguing work. It's a conversation a hypothetical conversation between two demons talking about influencing the mind of a Christian. And the mentor demon Screwtape says this to his disciple Wormwood. It is funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. So you don't have to succumb to all these godless ideologies if you just don't read your Bible. I don't care if you don't believe in critical race theory and you're so you know, ardently opposed to it if you don't think and pray and read and instruct. Satan's goal is to get you to not think. The less thinking you do, the more malleable you become to his influence, which means that we are to be people who think and not just think, but think deeply concerning the things of God and everything else. This, of course, applies to our children. Friends, this may be news to some of you, but our children are not missionaries. Our children are not revolutionaries and warriors in the kingdom of God. They're little hearts and little minds. They're disciples that you and I are called to nourish and instruct. Many parents today are very naive when it comes to their children's education and discipline. The worst thing you can do for your child when it comes to this war is to send them in it unprepared and ill-equipped. If parents are not actively nourishing the minds of their children with scripture and sound doctrine, they won't just grow up not knowing the faith, they will be discipled by the enemy. In his book, Family Driven Faith, Dr. Vody Bauckham writes this, we cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. And we know this is true from a physical reality sense. How evil is it for parents to take their toddler and hand him an AR and say, well, give him hell. We say that parent is evil. And yet we're very cavalier and nonchalant about doing that with the greatest battle ahead of them. That was building block number one. <laughs> building block number two. The spiritual directly impacts the physical. 
Building block number two. The spiritual directly impacts the physical. So we've established that we are in a spiritual war, and this war is a war for the mind. But let's go a bit further on. Pacifists often argue that because we are in a spiritual war, that means we must never bear arms. So teaching our children to be capable of handling lethal tools or be trained in combat, whether firearms or hand-to-hand, really has no usefulness or justification in the life of a Christian. But I think that assumption is overly simplistic. It is, in fact, true that a Christian's means of warfare is not fleshly. In other words, the way Christians wage war primarily is not through worldly means. Paul said it clearly in 2 Corinthians 10, as we've noted earlier. It is also true that Christians are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Human beings as human bodies are not our enemies. Human bodies are not the problem. Paul noted that in Ephesians 6. But to know that our war is not against human bodies is not the same as knowing that the enemy's spiritual influence will express itself through human bodies. I'm going to say that again. To know that our war is not against human bodies is not the same as knowing that the enemy's spiritual influence will express itself through human bodies. After all, the only way demons can exert their devices is through human means. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but to some degree, flesh and blood will be involved. Christians are not Gnostics. We do not believe that spirituality is good and physicality is bad. We do not believe that the body doesn't matter or what we do in our bodies doesn't matter. It definitely matters. But what you do in your body is directly influenced by the spiritual realm. Christians are also not materialists. We do not believe that the material universe is all there is. We do not believe that what you believe or think has no bearing on how you express those beliefs and those thoughts in physical existence. Quite the contrary. We believe that the spiritual, although it transcends the physical, does not ultimately seek to escape the physical. Rather, it seeks to transform it. Our eschatological reality is spiritual to be sure, but physical nonetheless. Right, so if you're here and you grew up thinking, I can't wait to get out of this thing, right? I don't need this body. I can't wait to not have a body. Right? You are wrongheaded in the extreme. Okay? Now, I know it's painful, right? As older you get, things start to deteriorate. And you're like, Lord, uh-uh. Right? But that longing should not be to escape the body. That longing should be to transform the body. We are embodied souls now, and we will be embodied souls in eternity. Whatever that looks like in the resurrection is quite the mystery. But we know that to be spiritual does not mean to escape the body. So the all-too-common question that is posed by the pacifist is this. Is our war a spiritual or physical war? The answer to that question is yes. (laughs) Because it's both. 
Or perhaps it may not be the right question. Perhaps a better question would be to ask, does this spiritual war, the war for the mind, bleed out into physical reality? And the answer to that is unequivocally yes. A simple example of this is just war theory. Was the American Revolutionary War merely physical? Was World War II merely physical? How about what's going on right now in the Middle East? Do you think that is merely physical? Of course not. Behind the physical is a spiritual reality. And sometimes that spiritual reality will involve physical consequences. In his sci-fi book, Paralandra, by the way, massive spoiler alert. If you haven't read that and you don't want to have it spoiled for yourself, run. Run out of this room immediately. But in his book, Paralandra, C.S. Lewis writes about the protagonist named Ransom, Elwin Ransom, who travels to the planet Venus and discovers that this planet is teeming with life and, and is in a pre-fall stage. Lewis recreates the Genesis account of the Garden of Eden through a science fiction story. Ransom, again, the good guy, the protagonist, who, by the way, is also the Christ figure in this narrative, travels there to intercept a conversation that takes place between the Eve of that planet, who is called the Green Lady because she's green. And the serpent is typified by the antagonist named Weston, who, you'll get a kick out of this, who is a demon-possessed secular humanist who is also a physicist. And a naturalistic materialist. Weston, the antagonist, this demon-possessed science professor, crash lands on the planet and begins to poison the green lady's mind with lies and deception concerning God and reality. So he is literally Satan incarnate. The plot unfolds as follows, and I want to read it to you just, just for sheer context. This is an excerpt of the plot I found on the interwebs that I think summarizes the gist very well. Here's what the, the story this is, here's what happens in the story. In the queen's presence, right, this is the eve of the, of the planet, he, that is Ransom, struggles through day after day of exhausting argument against the demonic Weston, who shows superhuman brilliance in debate. Weston's possessed body requires no sleep. This enables him to use methods other than explicit arguments while Ransom sleeps. The tempter tells the queen many stories of heroic defiance and introduces her to self-gratifying vanities such as clothing, makeup, and mirrors. On occasions when the queen is sleeping and Ransom is awake, the tempter attacks Ransom's morale by engaging in infantile obscenities and by torturing and mutilating small native animals. And so Ransom's like walking around the planet and he's like, there's like a a bunch of birds that had their feathers plucked out and just ripped open. Their guts are all over the place, right? And, and you learn that Weston did that with his own claws. Anyways, by the way, I hope you read the book. It's great. <laughs> with the demonic Weston on the verge of winning, Ransom senses a divine command to terminate the argument altogether and, the battle, and, and battle the tempter physically, hand to hand. The prospect terrifies Ransom, who is a slight middle-aged man with no recent fighting prowess. Right, some of y'all are like, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. He debates for hours with the divine inner voice until he suddenly bl blessed with awareness, until he is suddenly blessed with awareness 
that he cannot refuse the command to fight. His personal character simply rules out the possibility of refusing. He also perceives that the distinction between personal choice and personal destiny is not a real distinction at all. The two are somehow exactly the same thing. Ransom physically attacks his opponent, who is still inhabiting Weston's body. As the fight progresses, he finds himself inspired to greater and greater fury, shouting battle cries as he has never heard them before, and using combat techniques that he has never learned. After fierce, punishing resistance, the enemy flees. Ransom chases him over the ocean. Their struggle continues in water and in rocky underground tunnel, alternating between verbal argument and physical combat until Ransom finally throws Weston's possessed body into a pool of fiery lava, terminating the de demon's presence on the planet altogether. Right, it's interesting that it's noted that Ransom, when he escapes, he escapes with a wound on his heel that never heals. I don't know if you've ever heard where that came from. That's in Genesis. Right. But the idea is what? The spiritual inevitably and ultimately expresses itself through the physical. So what does this have to do with us here and now? What's my argument so far? Number one, we are in a spiritual war. Number two, the spiritual war is a war for the mind and has no place for neutrality. Number three, what the mind consists of inevitably impacts physical existence. And fourthly, spiritual reality will involve physical consequences and physical expression. What we believe about God, ourselves, the world, and everything else will impact how we live. R.C. Sproul writes this in The Consequences of Ideas. Foundational thinking cares about the difference between truth and falsehood because it cares about good and evil. Our warfare affects real lives and real people in real time. Right? One of the most glorious things you can do for the life of your children is to live your faith before their eyes. It's to live an embodied worship, an embodied spiritual war, an embodied expression of faith. And let them see the consequences of ideas. I'll never forget this moment where, after discussing with our children the horrors of abortion and talking about the reality that that brings about and the pain and the ache and the horror and the misery that abortion brings into the lives of men, men women, and children. To see that point be driven into the hearts of my young sons who with me stood outside an abortion clinic and watched the evil on display. Watched the women go to murder their children. Watched women and men scream obscenities at us because we're trying to help them. And them seeing that in real time. This war affects real people. But let's pause here and zoom out a little bit. How am I on time? I don't know. Am I over? I'm way over, huh? Ten minutes? Oh, my goodness. All right. The opportunities are endless. <laughs> Said the preacher, right? 
<laughs> okay. Let's pause and zoom out here a little bit. Building block number three. We're going to try to land the plane as fast as we can without crashing and burning. Right. All right. Building block number three. Worship matters. It's been said that culture is upstream from politics. I think that's true. And I think that what people mean by that is that a society's laws and government are highly dependent upon the values, beliefs, rituals, principles, ambitions, ethics, morals, and convictions and customs of a people. Right? So what you see in law is there because culture happened. Right? Our policies are predicated upon what people value and what people believe in a culture. But I would say this, yes, culture is upstream from politics, but worship is upstream from culture. Worship is upstream from culture. It's interesting, right? You heard Ryan bring up Deuteronomy 6. Well, what is the book of Deuteronomy? Where is this taking place? The book of Deuteronomy, if I could overly simplify it, is a collection of Moses' sermons at the base of Mount Sinai right before the people go into what? The promised land to do what? Destroy all the nations. But before they go do that, what do they become? A worshiping community. Worship is warfare. Worship is what impacts culture that then impacts laws that then impact people. What a culture worships, what a people worship defines the beliefs and customs and convictions of a people. And so if you just worship selfish, self-centered autonomy of the individual, what you get in return is everybody does what's right in their own eyes, which, by the way, is wrong. What you behold, you become, which is why idolatry in the Old Testament is very important. You worship deaf, mute, and dumb idols, you become a deaf, mute, and dumb person. You're like, yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah, it is. But if you worship the true and living God, if you worship him, what you behold, you become. You become like him. You desire what he desires. You hate what he hates. You love what he loves. You pursue that which is in alignment with his nature and character. And you begin to see culture change. When the church worships, the world is transformed. When you look at the culture and its chaos and free fall into destruction, the temptation is that you, you are to conclude as you stand back passively being aghast, right? You're like, I can't believe there's 72 genders. Who made this stuff up? What? Uh, right? You look back at that. And the temptation is for you to look and say, look at those heathens Heathing. But what you are rather to conclude is that the worship of the church is waning. 
The church's mission is to worship Christ and to call on all the nations of the earth to worship him as well. But the problem is that the worship of the church has been diluted and compromised. We have preachers in flip-flops sitting on bar stools wanting to dialogue with the pew rather than to declare the sufficient, powerful word of the almighty God. We have parishioners more interested in consumeristic preferences of style and vibe that is in accordance with their self-centered, autonomous, individualistic ideals rather than a holy reverence that is occupied in a meeting with saints gathered in warfare and worship of the true and living God. We must worship Christ. If we don't, the alternative is mayhem. And what is the church other than an army comprised of small battalions? Families. These small pockets of worship that build up the church in its holy fear and reverence of a holy and living God. So let's go back as we kind of try to land the plane without crashing. What goes on in those mundane moments of family worship? What's going on? Warfare. As you are day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, laboring at the mundane aspects of catechizing your children and slowly working through helping them get a, get a grasp of the text of Scripture as you're teaching them to pray, as you're teaching their little hearts and little minds to ponder the mysteries of the faith. You are engaging in active war. Right? We heard from John yesterday particularly the men here, right? Children are a blessing. Amen? And they're also weapons. Fill your quiver with them. With what? Arrows. That you then do what? You shoot into the world. And those weapons are sharpened through the artillery of sound doctrine, prayer, and song. And by the way, you know, Listen, there's something that is going gloriously right in a home where the men and women and children sing. Do you hear the battle songs of warfare in the living room and kitchen of your home? What, 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 are, what do we sing about? What do we sing? Every song. What is it? It's It's warfare. <laughs> We're saying, Christ won. He nailed our sins to the cross. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, conquering our greatest enemies of sin and death. And we echo that truth with loud voice and thunderous song, saying that our God reigns. That's what singing is. It's a glorious battle cry, an anthem of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that says, because Christ wins, his people win. The church wins. 
And in the end, ultimately, the world is one. And so what you do, Christians, in the confines of that small living space that you inhabit is glorious, glorious warfare. Amen? May you take up arms and continue that task for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time. Lord, we pray that you would take these things and press them deep on our hearts and help us, Lord, be reinvigorated, renewed, refreshed to go back into our lives, into our homes, and to take the business of thinking and praying and singing and pondering and meditating seriously. And we pray that you would use it all to make much of Christ, both in our homes and in the church and in the world. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.